Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. You know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me, you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, another of our special interviews on the COVID-19 crisis. Today, looking at the business community and in particular, Australia's highly skilled advanced manufacturing industry working in close collaboration with our best and brightest doctors, scientists and senior health experts, all working on the front line to protect us against this disease. Yes, some of our biggest and smallest companies virtually called to arms by the federal and state governments to share their expertise and capability and pivot to building the weapons we need in the fully-fledged campaign to win this germ war. Weapons such as more breathing ventilators, parts for those ventilators, swabs for the massive number of COVID testing kits still needed, and personal protective equipment for our health workers. These weapons are being produced right now in Australia in a rush to build up our national medical stockpile of essential items. One of those small entrepreneurial companies playing its part is Melbourne-based 3D Meditech. It's only four years old, still a startup really, whose co-founder is Paul Doherty. Paul Doherty isn't a scientist, nor is he a doctor. He's a business guy who also happens to be chairman of Melbourne Rebels rugby team. But Paul and his highly advanced 3D printing facility in Port Melbourne have very much been thrust into organised chaos, as Paul puts it, massively gearing up to do their bit to fight COVID-19. I hope you enjoy this episode of Build It, They'll Come. Paul Doherty, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. It's my pleasure, Helen. How are you? I'm pretty well, given our circumstances, and I'm sorry we're not able to meet in person, but this is the way of the world, virtual, remote interviews. We can still get these podcasts and this information out. Fantastic. Paul, what is 3D Meditech? It's a business we started nearly four years ago now, Helen. It's basically an advanced manufacturing facility that prints medical devices on 3D machines. And the manufacturing facility is really designed to do that at scale. So to try and take what is relatively new technology and and print medical devices at scale. Yeah. So you normally, before Corona, before COVID-19, you would normally were making orthodontic mouthwear, these align contraptions, which are the new form of yeah. brace, braces. Clear, clear aligners. Yeah, That's clear, right. clear we aligners. Yeah, smile new, style is our, is, our, is our clear aligner business. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. That's okay. a, an alternative to braces, but also helmets for children with misshapen or difficult shaped heads and orthotics for children with cerebral palsy. Are they the essential products you've been making with your 3D printing facility? That's right. And they're, they're, they're two separate product lines and two separate businesses. 
So, Paul, what are you committed to designing and making now in your advanced manufacturing facility given the COVID-19 crisis? So in, in late March, we were approached by Melbourne University, who are one of our um, key partners in certainly design and engineering. And they came to us because they had an issue with, uh, they'd been approached by the Austin Hospital down here in Melbourne around working on the filter that uh, that's important for hazmat suits. And they asked us to get involved in a design process, which we did. We did. We, we looked at designs and we, and then we printed a, a range of prototypes. After that, then they started to ask us whether or not we could do other things, provide other things. So we started to print eye shields and face shields for hospitals down here in Melbourne. And really that was, that was for us to just uh, help out in the, in, in the event that, uh, that uh, hospitals were running short of some of this PPE, this personalized protective equipment. And subsequently, and really where we've, where we've turned our focus is sort of two areas. One is the testing swabs, so the medical swabs that are used for testing the COVID virus and 3D manufacturing those. And the other one is, and we've been involved in both the generic and the corporate uh, ventilator projects that the government is facilitating to attempt to uh, put Australia in a position where we have significantly more available ventilators for COVID. And in a ventilator, they have a range of different moving parts. While we're not looking at the entire ventilator, we are assisting with the design and development of certain parts within that ventilator, particularly consumable items that uh, need to be changed in and out of the ventilator each day. Yeah. So, Paul, you are sounding very cool, calm and collected about this as if this was a normal order. University of Melbourne rings you up and says, look, we need a couple of these things. I mean, this is a major switch for Australia in general and certainly for smaller advanced manufacturing facilities like yours. It must have been very much mayhem inside your offices in those last, what, month since uh, early, late March. Organised chaos, we like to call it, Talon. Organised chaos. Um, and look, uh, the, the beauty, of, the, the beauty of, of, of 3D manufacture and then the advanced manufacturing processes is that you can very quickly put prototypes into action. What we've been doing over the last uh, certainly three years is, is designing a factory for Australia or facility for Australia that allows you to do that at scale. So this is yeah. very different. In a, in, a, in a normal 3D world, so 3D printers have been around for a long time, you know, 30 years of, of rapid prototyping and, and particularly in research and development. And really uh, in the United States uh, three or four years ago, they started to work on how they actually can use them at scale, particularly as we're, we're moving into what is essentially personalised medical care and certainly personalised medical devices. And so whilst the switch which for us was, you know, alarming, particularly from a speed perspective. What we've set up here is a world first, like it's, and it is world class. We've we've had a lot of people from all over the world come and join us. We put the team together that uh, that rapidly shift, and I think in any environment, our dentists and our and our orthodontists, um, you know, were made to uh, made to shut down pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, we were either thinking about, okay, so do we mothball? Uh, things for a while or run on a skeleton team or do we do we do something different and so we we then turned our attention to how we actually turn the entire facility into assisting on the COVID side so yeah it was it was tough 
So some of the essential tools that Australia needs with testing for COVID-19, with looking after our health workers on the front line with protective gear, will actually be manufactured at your manufacturing facility in Port Melbourne? Absolutely, it will be. Where you had sort of hospitals and I guess state governments all vying for and attempting to get get hold of you know PPE yeah, and uh, and medical swabs for testing and 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 obviously starting work on the ventilator projects that that then very quickly turned into and and it was a great compliment to you know the MTAA the the you know, Medical Technology Association of Australia and the TGA and then the governments to centralise that purchasing. Mm. And procurement piece. And because we were working with uh, Melbourne University and the Doherty Institute on the testing, the preclinical trials, and we've been very active on the MTAA actually over the last uh, last couple of years, we very quickly got ourselves on that, on those committees, one, one to be able to say, what is the capability internally? And as I think you probably would have seen in numerous media reports, it was pretty hard and still is pretty hard to get hold of this, you know, the, these, uh, the, the, the PPE particularly and, mm. and the testing swabs. And there was no one producing that at scale. And certainly most of that sourcing was done in Italy and mm. Spain and China, and they'd all been hit heavily themselves in relation to obviously the COVID uh, virus. So, you know, when you've got that limited production and you've got limited manufacturing capability in Australia, uh, that makes it difficult. And yeah. I think that's one of the fundamental changes that will come from from where we where we are today. Yeah. All right. Let's Before we talk about that, because that's a really important point. So you at your company, 3D Meditech, you are doing what very rapid R&D on a better swab for the COVID-19 tests that we're using? Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I don't want to blow my own trumpet because I'm not designing them or, or, or producing them personally, but they are a much better. And look, everyone at the Doherty Institute, the universities, uh, all of the medical clinical trials have all said they are a much better swab than those that we're, we're getting out of uh, China or other places. All right. Just give us a layman's term. How are they different and, and why are they better? So they're an iteration of the Harvard design. So we use the open source Harvard design to start the process. And then as we went through testing with the Doherty Institute, we then started to enhance and develop a different design around the tip, particularly which catches the virus to be able to test it. And so when I say better, you, when you're using a normal cotton swab, sometimes you can't get enough or you can't get the right grip to be able to get, you know, accurate testing. And, you know, it's about who's using it. So yep. if they're competent at it or not, or not competent at it. I think we've created this sort of dummy proof uh, swab now where on the end, because of the way that we've done the designs, it's very easy to capture the right amount of materials for them for them to us to be able to do the testing. And so to my layman's eyes, I would see a normal swab like the end of a cotton bud. As you said, it had a, has a sort of a soft cotton end. But these ones that you've designed, are they more like a mascara wand? Yeah, a little bit like a mascara wand. And the, and the difference is, that's a really good way to think about it. The difference is, as you will understand from a 3D printing perspective, is I can print a hard plastic component and at the same, in the same print, by reducing the layers of microns that are being printed, create a softer 
uh, more pliable tip, all in the same print run. So I'm not having to do anything in relation to manufacture other than one thing. Amazing. So do you have to conduct clinical trials of these first and when will they be if you do? Yeah, so uh, clinical trials are this week and we're expecting by the end of the week, uh, latest over the weekend, to have a thumbs up and a, and, a, and a let's get going. That is speedy. Now, when do you plan to begin manufacturing the new swab designs? We're hoping we're manufacturing next week, Helen. You know, what's been good and you, you understand when you're producing a, a, a medical device, um, you have to go through pretty uh, robust processes to get approvals for for any device um, in Australia, whichever whichever it may be. Yeah, I think what's been what's been great is when we built the factory, we built it with uh, our ISO one three four eight five, both um, both in, in in design and manufacture. We built clean room. We we had a, a very robust QMS system, so a quality management system that sat over the top of it. So when we go through the processes of applying for the TGA to tick and register the devices that we're doing, it's a much faster process. And so I think, again, when you go back to, okay, so um, how, how come you guys have been able to pivot and do it so quickly? I mean, it's like anything, you know, we're a, we're a startup that's been, you know, five years in the making. And only because we've set all of those platforms up has allowed us to get as quickly to market as we are. Yes. And of course, you've got these relationships from what you're saying with the University of Melbourne, with the Doherty Institute, with a lot of very high quality, you know, best practice organisations in the country. So I presume they're working with the regulators to get this done very speedily. Yeah, that's right. And, and as are we. So I think all of us have got a really good understanding of, of, of what's required, how the regulations work, and then how we quickly get, get, uh, get it to market. So yeah, it's been a, uh, it's been a great process, actually. And we've, we're, very, we're very proud of our partners and the way that they've all responded. An extraordinary process, really, of collaboration too. Now, the swabs that you're going to make, these new swab designs, how many are needed in this country and how many swabs can you make by when? What's well, really that? It's really this is this is this again this movable mm. um, feast that we've got at the moment. So um, it's pretty clear from all of the evidence, and certainly what you're seeing in the media now, that the fastest way to get out of the isolation state that we're in is to test more people. So where we would have thought about testing two weeks ago, which was or three weeks ago, which was. Do we need enough tests to make sure that you know we're find we're finding out where the virus is, who's got it, um, who needs to be admitted to hospital, who doesn't? I think that's shifting again to how how can we test? You know, and and we saw this morning. Uh, I saw this morning um, in New South Wales. They're sort of saying, "Well, we need to test everyone in in New South Wales, right?" So that's uh, that's a lot of people. Wow. Um, our view is that the amount of swabs that we need is moving on a daily basis, and I think the more swabs we've got, the the faster we actually get out of the out of the state that we're currently in. It's just an amazing effort that you and several other agencies are making. How exactly? I mean, I'm still having trouble getting my head around how 3D printing actually makes amazingly workable, strong products. But how exactly will 3D printing make these swabs? Is it the, because you use a couple of methods, don't you? 
Yeah, and so the method that we're using in here is is a, a laser sintering uh, machine. And again, just in sort of layman's terms, because it fascinates me as much as it fascinates everyone else, you know, essentially we've got a plastic powder that is in our machine. That machine heats up that powder and then the laser runs over that top of that of that powder to make the device, right? So each layer, each time a micron layer goes goes up, the laser runs over the top of it and and produces the device. So you almost take like a, like a sandcastle in the old days, if you if you built up the sandcastle and you had rocks inside it and then you broke the sandcastle down, you'd then pick the rocks out of it. Similarly, we get a sandcastle-looking powder and then we break that open and then all of the 3D printed devices sit inside that powder. So it is a fascinating process. Extraordinary. Almost like uh, you can imagine an archaeological dig and you brush away the powder and then the pieces, the very usable pieces are underneath. Now, you're also manufacturing parts for these breathing ventilators that are needed in ICU units and hospitals. Tell us about that. Similarly, there's sort of two elements that are that are the sort of the interchangeable elements that are relevant for 3D printing are what they call the filters and the peep valves. So yep. they're things that have to be changed out reasonably regularly, right. sometimes a few times a day. And so there are a number of projects going on at the moment. One is almost repurposing a, a sort of a, a paramedics ventilator, so repurposing it so that it does what we need it to do in an ICU unit. Yeah. And then there's uh, a number of ventilators that are being built from the ground up. So we're working with both of those organisations to work through how we can manufacture those those consumable parts on a daily basis because I think we'll get the machines up and running. So when I say we, those organisations will get those machines up and running. The difficulty will be will they have enough parts to ensure that the machine can run, yeah, run. you know, on a daily basis, yeah. And, and, and again, like to just to give you an example, we got some designs two days ago of some of those parts, so peep valves and filters, then we designed those parts in, in a 3D file. We printed them overnight. We sent them up to the people who are, who are preparing the ventilators. During the day, they tested those ventilators, came back to us and said, we've got some alterations that we like, but it's working. So, you know, literally within, within 48 hours, you've got, you've gone from design production test and then refinement, you know, in a, it's a very short space of time to be doing that in a medical device world. Yeah. So, yeah, we are breaking new ground. So, I mean, just to explain a bit more about the massive change that you've seen just in your 3D printing your medical company with the COVID-19 crisis. Have you hired more people? What are you doing in that sense? How have you managed that massive change? Yeah, so we 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 uh, we very quickly, um, and we've got some great project management resource. We very quickly went back to the government and talked about the volumes because in the end, we've got a, a staff at the at the facility now. So you know, a few years ago there were none. We've got forty staff that work at the, um, you know, in in what is advanced manufacturing in the medical mm. sector, and there are lots of people around. Again, our partners, Melbourne University and the Doherty Institute, who've all offered up 
the ability to assist us in mm. the process. The key bit will be when we go to scale. So we will need to employ a raft of people to assist in terms of, you know, taking things out of machines, packing things, making sure we're following the right processes. I mean, there's a raft of jobs and we'll get that expertise, so the engineering and the 3D expertise out of places like Melbourne University and certainly from a medical side, the Doherty Institute. Yeah. Then what does it mean for your systems, your manufacturing systems in there, your raw materials, your supply chains? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because, you know, one of the, one of the issues that we've got, and again, we're working very closely with the government on scaling up the facility to ensure that we've got that capability. Now, scaling up that facility in Australia, we don't make those machines. Yeah. Um, we don't make materials. So we've got to bring all of that stuff in and we've got to bring enough to be able to get to the quantities that are required to, to get us there. So there's a huge amount of planning. So we have a, uh, every day have a 9.30 and a 4.30 with that steering committee talking about what's happening today, where are we going, what does the project plan say. We've got a whole range of dependencies and it's, and it's in simple things, in simple terms, Helen, it's things like have we got enough power to, to ensure that we're powering up machines, air conditioners, all of the, all of the associated things mm. that go with it right through to, you know, have we got the right, uh, have we got the right paperwork to ensure that we're getting these things as, as medical devices to the right places? Yeah, so, so it's a, it's quite a huge job. Can you get the raw materials you need? let alone the data modelling, although you said you, the engineers often will come from the University of Melbourne and those sorts of bodies. But can you get the raw materials you need here in Australia? So the, the short answer is no, we can't. Wow. Um, we, we, can, we certainly have all of the raw materials. So what we've said, much the same as any conversation that's gone on at the moment around patents and IP and technology is that there's nothing, you know, super secret about the materials that we're using in there. It's a plastic polymer powder. Yeah. Getting the recipe that fits and works in the machines is where the secret source is. So we've been in deep conversations with our German manufacturer about um, who have a, have a, a heap of powder anyway to, to, to get us through. But if in the event we, we had to do it here, what would need to happen? Now, we have all of the raw materials. We have, you know, plastics factories. So we have the capability to be able to- In Australia, to, um, you mean? Yeah, in Australia, to be able to do that. It's just that we're not set up to do it. So yeah. we're now in the background, we've got a project looking at how we would blend our own plastics here if in the event we, we weren't able to source them from Germany. Yeah. Do you think more broadly Australia is too reliant on global supply chains? There's been a lot of discussion about this, i.e. reliance on China manufacturing or raw materials from China or Germany. And at some point they may say, no, we're not exporting for the moment. Uh, we're not giving anything yeah. out. And should this crisis and our shortage of some of these, particularly these essential medical items, be a strong wake-up call that we need advanced, sophisticated manufacturing here. Well, I, I couldn't have said it any better. I think yes is the answer to all of that. I think um, where we have seen, and we've been we've been sort of crying out for it for the last couple of years, saying to one and all that uh, this is an area that we can't let go. We really need to focus on creating and developing this industry. And you know what, Australians are really, really good in this area. They're really good in advanced manufacturing. They're really good at creating medical devices. We have really 
really good regulation, which is globally recognised, to be able to rapidly prototype, get qualified, and then and then deliver those projects the other way. So export them out. So we have become too reliant on China and other and other places. And I, absolutely understanding that that those things are, are in essence price driven yeah. and about um, about uh, about commerce. But then just take that back to where we are today and think about how not just with government support but with institutional support we can actually create an industry here which can employ much the same way the car industry did uh, over many years can employ thousands of people in medical device manufacture design and manufacture we can create those industries here but we don't we haven't traditionally focused on that we said well we can get it from over there for and for it'll be cheaper. cheaper yeah why would we bother you know and and i think this is the wake up call yeah so 3d high quality medical printing is really an alternative in my mind to traditionally made products i hope i've got that right i mean you're a disruptor in a sense but your products aren't steel or metal are they so you can't actually 3d print the ventilators themselves or certain machines that we do need and now that we don't even have a local car making industry is there a possibility that we can you said before there are some manufacturers of ventilators is that happening in this country i think again it's not 3d printing is not necessarily going to be effective and cost-effective in terms of metal manufacturing, no. let's say, of the ventilator casings. But there are plenty of firms that that, um, that manufacture that could do those casings. And, again, it's our ability to, to collaborate that's that's the key component. I mean, if you look at if you look here at how quickly we've we've brought products to market in the medical device sector, that's not whilst that's been a a, a difficult situation imposed on us by the fact that we've had this emergency and this crisis. If we think more laterally about this collaborative process, we could be we could be very quickly developing, designing, and having our own ventilator supply and a range of other medical devices by using the skills mm. that we've got around this country. Something else I just wanted to ask you about, what happens to the momentum not only to build up our own, you know, national stockpile of these essential items, but to ensure we do have this advanced manufacturing capability, what happens if we manage to eradicate or severely impede the path of COVID-19? Does the foot come off the pedal? If the crisis passes, do we become complacent again? No urgency to make these things here. It's actually a really great point. I mean, you know, we, we have certainly, you can certainly feel as we start to, you know, as we flattened it and we've started to come back out of this sort of uh, this, the, the self-isolation component, you can start to feel, and rightly, because human beings want to get back to normal, right? You can feel people getting back to normal. That will be the same for I time, I think, for government and all those people that have been uh, pushing tirelessly to get to this point. What we understand is that the government has said, hey, this is something that we have to deal to and we're going to put together the committees and there's already one uh, that's going to look at what this looks like post-COVID world. I really think the momentum and, you know, we'll be, we'll be out banging the drum. I think momentum, we've, we've seen it now. We've seen what we're capable of as, a, as an industry, right? Let's really now put the foot on the accelerator and get it right because 
again, whilst we think, you know, and, and, and none of us want the things that have happened in Singapore and other places to have a second wave of, mm. of the virus, none of us want to see that. But we need to be prepared and we can't just think that this is not going to happen again because yeah. it may happen. It may continue on for some time, but it also may happen again. So of course. what are we doing and, and how can we ensure that that industry is not just about being about crisis but can actually be a strong component of the medical supply chain going forward for Australia. Paul Doherty, I also wanted to ask you about um, something when you wear your other hat as chairman of Melbourne Rebels Rugby Club. What about the change to sport and how have you approached it at the club? Will that change? Will this crisis change the way, you know, sport and your team operate, particularly, I guess, for 2020? Yeah, look, it's been very similar to other industries, Helen, where you've had to deal with the crisis that's in front of you at, at a, a given point in time. And so we've gone through that process. And I think it will never be the same again. And I think what it does is it gives you the opportunity. So look at it through the, through a different lens, the opportunity to look at the tournaments that you're playing in, the way that you play, the, the, the product that you're putting out to market, how you go about that. This is the opportunity to review all of that. And I think one of the things that, that you know, I've I've I spend a lot of energy on is trying to get people to think differently and to to listen to a different set of messages, and that's the life of the entrepreneur, right? We're always banging on about, hey, we can do it differently, or have a, have a think about something else. What the what COVID, the opportunity that COVID is presented is people are listening. And so suddenly you've got, I think, this huge opportunity. Sport will never be the same. And I think broadcasters who have, you know, essentially funded sports right through from, you know, AFL and NRL right through to rugby are, are, are nowhere near in the position that they were no. you know, even 12 months ago mm. now, even less so. So we'll have to think differently about the way that uh, the way that the game is is um, administered and then the, the product that we put out there and the, and the way that we operate in our communities. Take me back to where the 3D Meditech idea came from and how it came about because it's a great story as I understand it. Yeah, so I had moved on from my prior business. A great mentor of mine, a guy called John Ralph, uh, who yes, uh, was a doyen, is, is is has been a doyen of Australian business, mm, said absolutely. to me, "You know, son, you need to go and do some uh, some proper uh, education now." And and, uh, and so he pushed me to do the AMP course. I, I pushed back for a couple of years, but I went and did the AMP course at Harvard, the Advanced Management Program. You mean? Yeah, Advanced yep. Management Program. Yeah. And during that, I was saying, "Well, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to you know take on the?" pathway of professional CEO or chair or how am I actually, what am I actually going to do? And I, and I was sitting in one of my classmates in my living group, so a small living group of eight, was the president of a company called Stratasys in North America, which is the largest 3D manufacturer at the time. And what twigged me when he did a presentation to the entire Harvard class was that the amount of investment that the United States had made in the advancement of 3D manufacture and and the medical sector. And I sent two emails. One was to a great mate of mine, Toby Hall, who's the CEO of St. Vincent's Health, and to a friend of mine, Ken uh, Shaw, who was the uh, still is the uh, runs a business called Ortho Kids, which is you know cutting cutting edge in terms of the treatment of um, cerebral palsy and plagiocephaly. And I said to both of them, 
What do you think about the 3D industry? And both of them shot back straight away and said, you need to do something about this. This has got to be your cause and your purpose. And so I came back and uh, spent a few months doing research. And this was in 2015 and 2016. Yep. Was 2015, I was at Harvard. And then yep. 2016, I really started on the project. And that guy who was in Harvard became my business partner, Gilad Gantz, who's uh, an Israeli out of Tel Aviv. And 3D Meditech was born. And we, we started the business saying, hey, we'll do a whole range of products here and then the dental side took off and it's become its own business in Smile Styler and the orthopedic side took off uh, the circle business and so we've got those two companies they're separate separate companies they both operate out of the Port Melbourne facility but we're also doing things like a project with the University of Melbourne on uh, metal spinal implants we are still whilst those companies are are rumbling along, we are still you know, doing a whole lot of research and development on other projects. Mm. So basically, I mean, there really was no 3D printing industry or ecosystem in Australia, was there a few years ago? Did you actually develop one? Well, I'd like to say I did. There, there certainly was. There certainly was a. Um, there certainly was a, a range of manufacturers, mainly in small service bureaus in Australia. But in terms of in terms of industry, no, there 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 hasn't been a a significant industry. We haven't really thought about or had the products that we can put on 3D machines that we can actually deliver it at scale. And that's starting to happen. And, and Helen, let me just give you one sort of a window into why why it hasn't happened because lots of people say, well, it's just so obvious. Why, why haven't we done it before? And part of it is just our, our, our understanding. And I talked before about governments. I think governments have been pretty good about seeding uh, companies and, 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 and assisting them. But then it's what happens institutionally. And an example might be from our side is that when we buy a 3D printer, we pay cash for it 100% upfront, bang, away you go. And if you're in Europe or the United States, you'll have either a 5% down lease arrangement mm. on your machines and you can use your funds to continue to grow your business, right? So that becomes operating capital to, to, to grow the business. What we have found here in Australia is the institutional impediment is we don't understand the industry or we don't understand what you're doing and therefore we're not prepared to back, you know, the simplest things like machines. We, we, we designed and built our own robot, which is operational in the, in the, uh, in the factory. It helps us particularly in the dental side. And, um, and we said, look, we could have uh, five of these robots operating, become more efficient, employ more people, get on with it. Um, that is a very difficult conversation to have with a bank. And mm. they just, they say, well, we'd rather give a mortgage um, or, or a loan to, to someone to, to that, that's, that's the easy stuff. And so, again, I think this parallel piece of developing the industry requires the institutions to come with us. Mm. You're really only, what, four years old. Are you making solid profit yet? So we've got both of our operations are break even. So one of the again, and and that just happens to be where they are in their in their in their life cycle. Um, and both of them are where we're just sourcing actually at the moment sourcing additional capital to grow the businesses. So we're yeah. really positive. These are these are both big growth businesses. We can grow these businesses in Australia and in Asia. Yeah. Um, we're going to inject capital into those businesses to make sure that that happens. We're very confident of our processes and systems. So in terms of the life cycle of the business, we are absolutely in that scale-up sweet spot. 
and very happy to be there. But we, you know, we had like any startup, you know, uh, plenty of capital constraints, plenty of ups and downs, yeah. plenty of hiccups along the way, uh, and that's the fun of, I think, you know, the the startup world. But yeah, yes, so we're, done we're, now, cu- we're now we're now break even, so it's great. Right. So you've done a couple of capital raisings. How much have you raised? And then, so what value does that put on your company? Uh, yeah, so given it's a private company, we don't generally kind of talk about the, the valuation piece. But I can tell you, you know, we've we've invested through both our institutional shareholders and ourselves, you know, upwards of 12 million bucks. And that's in both of those product streams, so Smile Styler and Circle, um, both of those with really strong valuations. And we're of the belief that um, they're sort of heading into that next territory. So the sort of 10 to $20 million requirement for capital to go to to the next stage, yes. and uh, so we're, we're actually in that process now, which was which was really accelerating hard pre-COVID. Uh, we were getting all prepared and 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 doing all of our work, and of course that's put a stop to it. And we've now got this business that sort of has come out of the mm. COVID piece. And we're not sure where it'll actually land from a from a business perspective, but again, it's just one of those things that comes out of the of the crisis. Yeah, we'll, that you have you to know, do. You have to be involved in. Yeah, or and, you want to be. We involved have to be involved in. in, and I think probably are going to have to fund. You know, ensuring that we've that we we've got a facility that can can assist in the in the critical medical supply chain. So you took on an equity partner. Do you, did you need that for that capital intensity of a business like yours? Yes, we did. Yeah. We took on a capital par- partner, so, um, so someone who I'd been involved with for a long time, a guy called Duncan Savile and Charles Gillings in, in another business. They've been great supporters of mine. And I said, look, I'm going on this 3D journey. And they said, okay, well, we're coming with you. And uh, and so they've been they've been fantastic uh, uh, supporters of the business, you know, from day one. And we put obviously put our own money into 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 the business. So, and we know we know that this next stage, you know, and we're we're I guess we're starting to have the conversations with the Australian you know investment community to say, okay, let's go, let's take this to the next stage. Yeah. Let's go back just a little bit further, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but what was your life like growing up? Did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Were your folks in business? Did you always have a burning ambition to start your own business? Uh, so, first question is, I, I actually grew up in Canberra in a sort of a middle class. Uh, my dad was a public servant. <laughs> my mum was a nurse. You know, I grew up in a very sort of middle class background. And so, there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. But for some reason, my sort of metronome sort of beat at a different pace. And I was always thinking about setting up businesses. And part of that was was really being, you know, uh, wanting to be in control of my journey and the mm. destiny and and uh, and the purpose piece and you know it's taken me 20 years to 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 get there you know to a place where I'm where I'm really comfortable and our, and our business now the incubator business so BRC capital is our incubator and it's incubating at the moment six businesses like the 3D Meditech businesses Smile Styler and and Circle it's incubating other businesses both in the health uh, sector and the technology sector to get that up so I didn't ever have that background but I wanted to 
I always wanted to start businesses. Yeah, in 2004, when I returned from overseas, I, I founded Direct Connect, and that, that was a 10-year journey. So 2004, and then business was sold in 2014, and I did uh, 12 months at the end of 2014. Then I did 12 months with the business in the middle of that, did my Harvard course. Yeah. And once my 12 months was complete, I then went and started the um, the 3D businesses. So right. it has so, been this sort of constant journey, yes. Yeah, so Direct Connect. Now, I see in the um, – when I do some reading on this, it was combined with Lumo Energy and you sold those couple of businesses with your partner to Snowy Hydro for 600 million bucks. Now, I'm yeah. presuming Direct Connect did not get the bulk of that money. Can you give us a hint <laughs> about whether you got 20 get, million, 50 million, 100 million? So, no, nah, well, it, it was it was combined in. Actually, the, the price was never made public. So, I, I can't, I'm not going to do that now, Helen, but but certainly it was a uh, it was a key component because when you looked at when you looked at the retail energy business and you looked at what we did as a business in terms of provision of customers into you know retail energy both of those were a fantastic fit and uh, and so that business got sold to Snowy Hydro in 2014 and uh, and they've been um, you know they've been working hard on it and it's been growing and uh, and it's been a great success story for them um, all right so as suffice, well as it was for us suffice to say that you made a lot of money out of that? Well, I, you, 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 again, you say, well, we, we had a great time. Yeah, we had a great time and we made some money. You know, what it, what, it did allow, what it did allow me to do personally is it allowed me to seed the other businesses yeah. that we've got now yeah. and give me an opportunity to start to develop something that, you know, is really about as a really about my journey as opposed to I think previously the Direct Connect journey was a journey with a whole range of different people involved. This was this has been much more about my journey and yeah. and, and my business partners and and has been a lot of fun. So it gave you enormous freedom, that money you got from the sale of Direct Connect. It does. It gives you a bit of freedom and it and it, and it allows you to to do things differently. And we can make our mark here in Australia. And you know a lot of the a lot of the conversations that we had with um you know the investment community um, was well why why are you actually doing this and we said well because we, we, we believe we can build big businesses we can create jobs we can we can put Australia on the map um, we're already world renowned for what we do in the in the in medical sector why why wouldn't we take all of that knowledge and why are we then taking that offshore and having other people either produce our devices or our products and then sell it back to us at a profit. I mean, that just for me, that felt crazy. So I saw opportunity from the day, from day one, and I think that's that's uh, I still feel that very strongly. I am very very big on getting good people around me, mm. and I think you know from the outset, getting those people around you that can think, can challenge, can pivot the way that the, the way that we're doing things, um, and uh, and is and is prepared to. To think slightly differently, that 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 I'm attracted to those people because they have seemed to have a a value set. I think if you enjoy what you're doing and you've got purpose, you know it's 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 really the key to to having a fulfilling life. And what you will do if you get to that point is you will then create opportunities for other people. And mm. that's in essence where I'm going now is. 
how do I how 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 in terms of what I'm doing from a from a purpose driven perspective, am I able to create opportunities for other people? Whether that's jobs, businesses, you know, in their lives, that's that's become super important to me. I'm asking all my guests this, and maybe just in one sentence, what's the biggest thing you've learned on this journey to build your 3D Meditech business? For me, it's been it's been the listening journey. So I think you said it earlier on. The biggest thing I've learned, I've become a much better listener. Um, and the thing that you said earlier, you're not a scientist, you're not a, uh, you're not a medical guy. Why are you suddenly in this? What it's, what it's made me do is listen. We've got engineers and we've got medical people and, and, and it's my role to pull all those people together, get an outcome and then create that outcome into something that's commercially viable. So, that 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 for me has really been that been the fundamental thing on this journey has been that has been the listening journey. Listen to these people, these really good people, and again, I go back to getting good people around you. Listen to them because they're telling you they're telling you the way to do it, and use your skills to actually pull it all together. And would that be the advice you'd give to those who would love to try and do what you've done and what you're doing? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I might that would be my advice, and my second kind of piece of advice is just get on with it like just do it we hear a lot of people talking about things that they're going to do it's in the execution so lots of great ideas get in get out there and execute have a go that's my that's my number one and how much of your success with 3d meditech and i know it's obviously still in very much the startup scale up stage how much of that success is due to your drive, your innate skills, your expertise, and how much is due to luck? Oh, there's a good element of, uh, of luck along the way. There's no doubt about that. But I think, uh, as I said before, you know, this has been this, this sort of 20-year journey. I've made all the mistakes and it just allows me to shorten the time that it takes to get to, it, get to a certain point. And I think you've got to have a level of determination to do that. There's no doubt about that. But you've also got to be able to see the opportunity and pull everyone together. And one of the things that I, that I think I do reasonably well is I lead. And so that's why talking about the getting on and doing it, get out there and have a go, lead, get good people around you and listen to what they're saying. That for me is the fundamental uh, reason for success. Paul Doherty, co-founder of the 3D Medical Printing Company, 3D Meditech. Thank you so much for joining us on Build It, They'll Come. Helen, was wonderful. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.